Welcome to Mosaic's Portable Talks podcast series, Listening to God, where I get to sit down with family, friends, and mentors, people who are in the thick of following Jesus and embodying His kingdom and justice in their own context. And I get to ask them about how they experience the presence of God and how they pray. At Mosaic, we believe Creator God, Jesus Christ, is present and speaking always and in many ways. Some of those ways may feel like absence and silence. And we also believe that Creator God, Jesus Christ, is always drawing us deeper into the mystery and reality of His presence. I hope the conversations in this series will deepen your confidence that it is possible for you to experience God and hear Him speak to you. I also hope they provoke you to explore new faithful experiences of prayer, and I hope they stoke your desire to draw near to God's presence in Jesus Christ, which, like a fire, can warm, give light, and transform that which it touches. Today's episode is a conversation between me, Andrew Karam, and Sandra Maria Van Opstel, the Executive Director of Chasing Justice. Sandra lives in Chicago and has a wealth of experience and wisdom in the hard work of advocacy and justice, community organizing, mentorship, and leadership. She is a theologian, a liturgist, an author, and more. You'll hear Sandra talking about prayer as both a state of being and as the practices that we perform when we pray. You'll hear her center the community in everything she says, and you'll hear about God's living presence in the Catholic, Protestant, and Pentecostal traditions to which she belongs. I hope you enjoy it. All right, well, welcome to uh, another episode of Mosaic's Portable Talks. I am here with uh, a wonderful friend and a person who's had a significant impact on my life, uh, Sandra Maria Van Opstel. Uh, Sandra, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I am uh, the daughter of two immigrants that came from Latin America to the United States um, in the late 60s. Um, And I'm a pastor. I'm a worship leader. I'm a neighbor. I'm an activist here on the west side of Chicago. I'm uh, married. I have two little kids and um, and yeah, I'm just trying to figure out life one day at a time. <laughs> one day at a time. <laughs> yeah, so um, about a year ago, um, we launched an organization called Chasing Justice. Um, And Chasing Justice is a community led by people of color that's mobilizing others to a lifestyle of uh, following Jesus and living justly. So that's what we're doing. We have um, primarily it's kind of digital content, you know, since we're all anyway at home, Um, but it's digital content on Instagram and Facebook. We have master classes where we kind of um, will have an hour plus long discussions on particular topics of justice or um, of integration of faith and justice. We have cohorts for leaders um, that we're running right now um, on really trying to elevate and center the voices of leaders of color who are doing the work of justice and running organizations that do that. Um, And we're just kind of getting ready to launch a couple new projects. So yeah, Chasing Justice is basically like a movement of that is led by people of color for the purpose of trying to imagine what a lifestyle of faith and justice would look like. Thank you. That's great. So um, I'm not 
Well, I, I, so I'm not like the, the super seasoned podcast person. So I'll just, I should probably tell a little bit about how we got to know each other. Um, yeah. I first met Sandra in the basement of a house in Toronto. Um, I had just come back from a retreat. I was working with University Canada. I had been out on the East Coast. I came back from a retreat, flew into Toronto and went to this basement of a house to play worship music because Sandra was directing the Urbana 09 worship team. And that's a collaboration between InterVarsity USA and InterVarsity Canada. And I was auditioning for it. And um, she invited me onto the team and then did an incredible job of shepherding this team um, through a whole year internship, basically in, in multicultural, intercultural worship. And um, she hosted us in her home and in different places around the United States and uh, just poured her life out into us so that we could embody a, a form of worship and expressions of worship that would bear witness to the Jesus kingdom as we led the conference in her batter battle and I. And then since then, I've gotten to go down and visit Sandra a bunch of times with different staff teams that I've led. And she's hosted us in her house multiple times. And even folks from Mosaic uh, got to visit with you. And then you came and visited us. Mm-hmm. Was it last year or the year before? I guess it would have been the year before, yeah, eh? 2019, year before. Mm-hmm. after Nate's. So super grateful for you. My gosh. Grateful Grateful for our friendship. Excited to keep, you know, journeying together and (laughs) see where the Lord takes us. Yeah. Right. So um, thinking about prayer and, um, and experiencing God's presence in prayer and and listening to God's voice. um, Like when did you first experience God's presence or hear God speaking to you? Is there a first time that you remember there? Um, I, I don't know that I remember a first time. I think my experience was more a not remembering without God's presence. I mean, I grew up in a home that was, my parents, again, they're from Latin America. So I grew up in a, in a very, um, like a home of faith. And so God was always assumed as being present. Um, and I think because my parents came from a Catholic background, um, they, they operated as if, um, the assumption was God, you know, the assumption was God's presence. The assumption was, um, reliance on God. I think particularly coming from a, a, an immigrant experience, uh, where there were, they were, you know, looking for safer, <coughs> sorry, looking for safer, you know, um, better opportunities. I think that their experience of faith was that God was the one that sustains you. So I, I don't remember a, uh, a time without it. With, without a sense of God's presence with me. I do remember, like I do have very vivid, um, they're almost pictures, they're not really memories, they're like images of myself in in church with my grandmother, um, experiencing um, the sense of God's presence in community within a Catholic mass, um, within a conversation with her. Um, she used to, um, always read her Bible, like she had her Bible next to her bed. Um, and she always would get up and, you know, put her feet on the ground basically. And then 
begin to pray and open up her Bible. And so I think that's my memory of God's presence with me. Um, I remember I have very strong pictures of my father um, who's, he's still alive, but he's has dementia now. So it's, it's, it's really hard. You know, it's like, it's, um, the, the memories are stronger for me now because I don't see them anymore, but he used to have this huge, um, <laughs> white, uh, King James Bible, you know, like the one with the, with the uh, surfer Jesus on the front of it. It's, it's a famous Bible. I don't know who made it, but it's like a white Bible that's kind of got a puffy cover and it has this like picture of Jesus in the middle. Anyway, I, I got to find it and take a picture of it before we lose it somewhere. Um, he had bought it at a garage sale for 25 cents. And, um, and so he used to open it up and it's full of highlighting and marking and whatever. But I think he primarily used it devotionally, you know, like not for like studying scripture or reading scripture, like in large quantities, but more like reflecting. And so I think I have this memory of God's, um, presence being around me through the through the worship and the prayers of my community and then um, I think finally for me probably when things began to like awaken for me and in, in, a, in a sense of God's presence around me was probably in junior high um, and I was at a you know you know imagine like I think it was like a ba southern baptist you know Christian camp type thing where they tell you that Jesus is your friend and then you know you come to the front and accept Jesus as your friend and savior um, but that experience was very profound for me. So I think for me, um, aside from when I was confirmed within the Catholic church, it was probably the second most potent experience of God's pleasure in me. You know, like God loves me. God is not just with me and is not just in control and is not just around me, but God like has an intimate, like desire, like connection with me. Um, and so Jesus is my friend <laughs> and that is also meaningful. And so, uh, so I think that would be, it was like in the basement of this, of this like camp, you know, um, I remember the wood paneling and the cheesy, um, it was like probably like a Carmen skit, you know, like the few guys who remember music from Carmen music. Yeah. So that was the, that was the era y'all. That was the era. But I think for me, it was a sense of God's presence was around me through community yeah so one of those experiences of god's presence was that like i'm curious about like what like what did you feel in 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 the confirmation experience that yeah I was, okay that's so long ago man i was my kid's age so um no, I was, must have been, I, I don't remember how I was, I think I, just a sense of like, um, you know, it was actually the same sense I felt that day when as a, as a junior higher, I think I felt like the creator, the creator and sustainer of the universe wants to be in proximity to me. I think that's what I was feeling like creator God who holds all things together, as Colossians says, that same God not only made me, but wants to be in relationship with me, in communion with me. And I think when I was little, both because I was little and because it was within the um, context of Catholicism, it was more mysterious. 
the, the sense was like more of a mystery. Um, and then when I was in junior high and it came through the words of a kind of a Baptist theology, then it was less mysterious and more proximate, you know, more like my buddy, which I think I needed. And now as I get older, I think it's more mysterious again. Um, but I think in each of those cases, um, it was the sense that how could a God who is so powerful and can hold all things together and who in whom all things are made, how could that God want to love me personally? Or be concerned with me, like who am I, you know? <laughs> And so as you, as you grew, um, how, like who taught you to pray um, in those, and, and I don't know, I mean, like, obviously you've answered the question in terms of like, like when you talk about your grandmother and what you saw with your father and I'm sure many other folks in the community and as the community prayed together at church and, and uh, I'm sure in other places. Um, so I don't know if you want to stay with the early years or if you want to move us through a little bit into your teenage years or university years, but. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, fundamentally, I think my parents taught me to pray. I think my grandmother taught me to, she, she, she molded my life around prayer in that sense. Um, I think as far as like an activity, like a discipline, because prayer is both, a, I think prayer is both a state of being with God as well as a discipline that we practice. So, you know, to, to like, I, I was talking to a friend the other day and I was like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like these contemplatives and brother Lawrence who taught me to practice the presence of God. That was my grandmother who taught me to practice the presence of God. She did that for me. Um, and so even though she didn't write a book about it, you know, um, she, I think it was our Korean, you know, our Korean grandparents, our Latina grandparents, our Jamaican grandparents, all the, the people that were sitting in an experience that, that, that required of them that they would come before God every day and along the day um, as they were walking to and from because they were scared in the same way that I would say um, many of the mothers in our community today pray, practice many of our um, undocumented immigrants and asylum seekers in our community they practice God's presence as they ride their bike to and from their their jobs or the, or the Home Depot where they're waiting for jobs because they they have to practice that um, so I think that um, that is not a contemplative practice. It's actually a survival practice um, that people who have the privilege of contemplating then bring into their experience. You know, um, I would say inner varsity taught me the discipline of prayer. Um, you know, it was through, um, I don't think I learned that actually in my church, church experience. It was inner varsity that taught me the discipline of prayer. Like the, 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 the types of prayer, well, there's intercessory prayer and there's, you know, lament prayers and there's prayers of praise and there's prayer, like all the types of prayers. There's prayer as you go along through the day. There's praise that you prayer, um, activities of prayer, like at the end of the day when you might do like a consolation and a desolation, you know, some kind of, again, like an examine. And so there's retreats of silence in which you just are silent and, and that's a form of connecting with God. And so I think inner varsity taught me disciplines of prayer. They literally gave me a handbook, you know, the, the handbook of spiritual disciplines. Um, and they taught me to think about prayer in many, many ways. 
um, which I think freed me in some sense, even though it, it's like invites you to a discipline, but in other ways it, it frees you because you realize there isn't only one way to pray. There are many pray, ways to pray, which gives you language then for what you experience in your own life. Like let's say you go through something very painful or, or something very difficult in your, in your family, like there's a health crisis or something and you find yourself just, you know, screaming and crying and, and, and just like, and you, and, and you're not, you don't have words, you know, and, and you're just like, no, you know, and how long and how could you and all those things you say to God, that that is actually a form of biblical prayer that we were not taught in most of our um, spiritual experiences. And so to say like, oh, that has a name, that, that's, that has a name, it's called lament. And actually, you know, 40% of our Psalms are written in that way. And so we are free to do that. It's not inappropriate. It's not wrong even though the cultural context we're in may have caused us to think that our emotions are um, less than godly because we're not controlled by, um, you know, we're not being sober-minded and controlled by the truth of who God is or whatever. Like, no, actually, we're allowed to scream, and, and we should. Um, in the same way, we're allowed to dance, and we should in our prayer. So I think it was it was some of those frameworks that I got through InterVarsity and through the resources that they gave me as a college student that I I was able to say okay these are some these are some names for what I've been experiencing like this thing that we do before we start worship in our churches this has a name um, and it's not just like emotional people it has a name and and it's and it's a practice and then later on when I was able to like for example visit. Um, with our brothers and sisters in Egypt, in Cairo, and the churches there when I was doing some some uh, global experiences with students, I was like, oh, they actually have like people that are, um, like the scriptures say, like bring on the people that are gifted in wailing. There are people that are gifted in this thing and they come out to these experiences and they, they're actually groups of women that lead, that lead lament. They're like, they're like priestesses that lead this experience of worship in the same way that you would have someone lead a celebratory song of worship where they're exhorting you and compelling you to clap your hands or to sing or to shout it out you know in the same way there are people that are gifted in in weeping and wailing that in, that encourage you to to um, release those emotions to God instead of um, capping them or controlling them in your cultural kind of expectations so I would say that was the place where I learned um, the, the discipline of prayer and also, um, prayers connection to scripture. So, um, to, to, to something I had said earlier about like that feeling of Lord of, uh, being like known by God. Um, I remember once in, I was in a Bible study and it was, it must've been my senior year cause I was already living in an apartment with a group of folks and we were in a Bible study and we read this, this Psalm eight and, and Psalm eight says, Oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set the glory above the heavens. You know, there's this praise when I consider the heavens and the work of the thing of your fingers and the moon and the stars, what, what are we that you are mindful of us? You know, why, like, why would you care? You know, um, everything is, everything is from the work of your hands, everything, you know, kind of this, 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 this call and this cry out that of Lord of God's um, supremacy of God's majestic nature, and yet you're mindful of us. And so I think give, being given um, tools to name prayer and to actually utilize Scripture in prayer in a different way um, th that happened definitely in my 
in my 20s, in my early 20s. Thank you. And so along the way, um, have you ever had experiences where you felt like you were off the path in prayer? I mean, I don't want to be too, like, I don't want to be too narrow with, with what that can look like, right? Like some folks, you know, I think it's pretty common for me to have conversations with people who, um, who have grown up in say a Pentecostal tradition or something like that, where everybody has a word and then you realize, no, not everybody has a word, you know? Um, but there's lots of ways in which, as you say, like, so as there are so many ways in which prayer can look within the life of the church, um, there are ways in which we can lose the path beyond just kind of like a, an individual not hearing God correctly or something like that. Right. So in, in the course of your life, have you had experiences where you felt like you were losing the path in terms of prayer? Um, I wouldn't call it losing the path, but I would say exploring prayer. Um, so yes, I mean, I am Pentecostal. So from, from Catholic to Baptist to, you know, to Pentecostal to reform back to Pentecostal, you know, I've had my, my experiences. Oh yeah, totally. When I was in college, like in my last few years of college was, I mean, I'm, cause I'm dating myself. So it was the nineties. Um, and there were all the, the kind of resurgence and kind of revival things, mostly in white spaces, actually. So that's that's something I'm still um, processing, too. But like kind of charismatic white spaces that were precursors to Hill Songs and Bethel and all those other which people I don't know if people know, but most of the um, Lakewood, you know, Israel Houghton, all of those worship movements came out of charismatic Pentecostal you know, light spaces. So some of them prosperity gospel, some of them, you know, so yes, definitely. I was at those rallies. I traveled all around. I think I even, well, I think one time I even went up to Canada um, to do like, no, I, I think it was some church. It was, I can't remember. We were like, we, we went around and we, cause we were worship leaders. So we were following, it's usually a worship movement, you know? So it's like the prayer and, and the prayer is attached to worship. And so, um, but yeah, we found ourselves like in situations where people were like, it's like you had to have a word every time or, you know, um, it was like the, 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 um, I can't even remember what it was called, but it was like the, 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 the worship kind of laughing movement that happened. I can't remember what it, that's called, you know, and, and I can't remember what it's called, but anyway, so lots of conversations around deliverance and um, you know, uh, words of words of wisdom and prophecy. And um, and as a Pentecostal, I believe in all that. Um, I just also believe in order. And so I didn't think that was very orderly. Um, I felt it was manipulative, that particular movement I was I was kind of following. But I don't regret it at all. I, I remember having mo moments in that in that season where I was like, God, I don't want to feel guilty because I don't have a gift or because, you know, like I don't have a word of, of knowledge or because I don't like, I don't want to feel, I, I just want, I want everything you have for me. I want nothing less and nothing more. Like whatever you have for me, I want nothing less and nothing more. And I think that was my prayer over those uh, three years or so. Like I don't want to be so involved with wanting like connection with you and intimacy with you and um, and power through you that I actually am like worthless to my neighbor, you know, because so much of that was individualistic. It was, and when I read the scriptures, for example, I know that the gifts of the spirit that were given in the book of Acts 
which are the history of the church, were given for the purpose of delivering communities, saving communities, bringing God's peace and, and God's uh, flourishing to communities. So every time there was a miracle present, it was for the purpose of the deliverance of the people, not for the person. So even though it happened in the person and through the person, it wasn't necessarily for the person, if that makes sense. Um, or I should say solely for the person. So anyway, all that to say that I think I grew. Um, I think that I understood I, and I understand more the, the space that I'm in now, particularly as a, as a, a pastor that's, uh, that's pastoring in a, in a lower income, mixed income, black and brown context. So um, especially as a global Christian who's understanding that most of the world is Pentecostal, most of the world does believe in the gifts of the spirit for the church. Um, the question is, um, who are they for, the individual or for the church? And then, um, so I would say that whole movement of prayer and worship and um, the manifestation of the of the presence of God, all that has to do with prayer. I, I don't regret any of it. I'm so glad I went through it. Um, I'm so glad that I was um, released from a, a dichotomy of uh, intellectualism and good sound doctrine and theology means that you don't, have an experience of God because that that in itself is is very dichotomistic and very Western. Um, I it doesn't really compute in most of the world. So it's like, of course, sound doctrine and good biblical teaching would lead you to more experiences with God. Um, so anyway, um, yeah. So I think um, I, I think there were some things I did that weren't. I wouldn't say they're wrong or off. They were more like not necessary. Like, I'm sure I always, when I look back at the time, I'm like, God was probably like, that's cute, Sandra. Now let's redirect, let's redirect you to, you know, what is really important. I don't think whatever the, the movements I was a part of and what I experienced wasn't harmful or manipulative in any way. Um, you know, we weren't going around telling people like, if you don't speak in tongues or if you don't have this experience of God, you might not be saved. Like that was not what I was a part of. I, although I know it was, a lot of people did have those experiences and they're still recovering they're still recovering from that abuse. That wasn't my experience. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I, I think in light of what I see happening around the world, like I do believe that God enacts miracles. Um, and I believe that some of those miracles are enacted not just out of thin air, but through the community and through the way that God moves in, in, the, in, the, in the hearts and the minds of people. So I don't see them as a dichotomy. Like, for example, a, a couple that is experiencing infertility and they are, and they conceive, I think that's a miracle. Uh, were the doctors involved? Absolutely. Were they involved? Well, yes, that's just science. You know, yes. But is it a miracle? Yes, I think it is. And so I, I don't see them as, I think my experiences led me to understand my prayers to God and my prayers amongst community as a way of, not only connecting with God, but um, really tr being transformed in community and transforming the community that I'm in. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Wow. And for your, um, for the way in which you are working and serving now, um, Do you have a, a team of folks that are praying for you regularly still? Is that is that part of the deal? 
Yeah, but the team has, like, it's a different group now. So I would say when I was in college ministry, I had, like, um, obviously the people that I sent my prayer letter to, I was assuming many of them read it or, you know, but there was a group that was kind of core to that that would, let's say, of six to eight people that would, that had, I think, had a discipline and a gift of prayer that would keep praying for me regularly. And then when I came to be at the church at Grace and Peace, I really made the the Saturday morning mothers you know, they met, they meet for coffee and Banco Juan Mantequilla. They just have these like Cuban bread with butter and coffee on Saturday mornings. There's a group of about four to six of them. And so I made them my prayer team because I knew that they would actually commit to praying for me. Like they, they would, they're going to be there together, you know, um, and they're women that are just amazing. And so when I left my, my role at the church, um, I still, I still utilize them as my kind of like prayer covering. Um, and so if I have a difficult event coming up or, a, you know, we're experiencing something difficult in our parenting or then I just reach out to them and ask them to pray for me. But I, I think my primary spiritual community is where my prayer team sits, like my local primary spiritual community. So, you're pretty public about um, being an Enneagram eight. Yes. You are also uh, like regularly confronting pretty massive systems of injustice and entrenched, um, entrenched evil in the life of the church and in, and in the world around us. Um, and you, and you go there with your body, like you don't, you don't stand at a distance um, and kind of opine about stuff like you are in, like it's where you live. It's, it's, it's just, yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit with us about what, and maybe, maybe it's just like what you were talking about, like prayer as a state of being when you're say down at the border visiting with uh, like you went down to, to, to not just to protest, but to be present with uh, families that have been separated a few years ago. Right. And um, like, what's it like for you to, to be in the presence of God as you are in these places of intense conflict where um, your body is actually the battleground for uh, a lot of that. Um, okay. So, I, I believe that the work that any of us does in trying to see transformation, whether in the lives of a family or in the children that we teach as school teachers or um, in the work that we do, you know, as consultants, even in corporations, that we're constantly actually um, addressing systems of evil, but we just may not see them or know that, that they are as such. So if you're dealing with inequity in education or children who are, um, you know, experiencing abuse in the home, you suspect that there might be abuse in the home or they're being fostered because they had to be removed from a home. When you look at all of the systems and, and the, the things that have impacted those, those children or, um, you know, the things that you're experiencing in the corporate plate in the corporate, um, sector, they're all systems of evil that I would consider powers and principalities. So forms of capitalism that, that front profit over people, you know, um, uh, systems of, of companies working that are about efficiency and 
profit over the care and concern of the flourishing of their employees, that is evil. Like, it's a system of evil. And so whether you think of, like, generations of racism and genocide within our countries, in Canada and the U.S., those are systems of evil that are formed in desiring to conquer, to own, to to exploit. Those are systems of evil. And while we can get mad at, you know, our former President Trump or while we can get mad at a particular person, I don't think it's actually the person. I think it's a system and a narrative of injustice and of oppression and of supremacy that we're fighting. So I actually see that whole thing as like, I am standing in front of a system of evil in which the reason I don't believe that a person, that a parent, I don't believe that any of us as parents wakes up one day and says to ourselves, I hope we abuse our children. I hope we, we, we beat them or that we sexually assault them or that we ignore them or that we, something has happened in our lives to make us that way. Something has happened. And it's not just mental health, um, which also has correlation to poverty and abuse, you know, obviously. But um, it's it's something that's at work. And so you have generations of people. So you look at, for example, how does the, the, the way that American slavery, chattel slavery, how did that impact the psyche and the identity and the flourishing of the, of the black family? into Jim Crow, into current, you know, um, incarceration. And so you think of those kinds of things and you think it's, it's not that I'm trying to convert or transform this person. I'm actually standing against a system of evil. What's happening at our borders, on our southern borders as the U.S., is a system of evil that is saying to us, like we have American Christians that are like, well, I think, you know, um, I think the, the new camps that Biden is putting, these are progressives, I think the new camps that Biden is putting up are like, you know, I think I think they're pretty good. And I heard on the radio the other day on, on Coastwitch, I was like, the woman was like, would you ever say to yourself, Andrew, would you say to yourself, yeah, my kid, kids could go there for six to eight weeks. Yeah, I would like to place my children in that camp for eight months. Of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't put your children in those places. So to say that, to say that the camps that we're putting children in and the cages that they're living in are acceptable because they're more um, sanitary now than they were under Trump or whatever, that, that is a way of looking at the world that, is, that has such a distorted imagination that only a power and principality of seeing brown children as less than human would be at work there, right? So I, I know that's not what you asked me, but I'm telling you, this is, what I, this is what I see behind me. So I'm like, this is not about this bad person that did the racist act, or this is not about this terrible parent who or grandparent who, um, who murdered their child. Like, this is about a system of powers and principalities that is at work and has caused generational trauma, has caused racial trauma, has caused um, inequity in systems, um, so that when you go to work every day as a government worker, as a consultant in your, you know, bougie boutique firm, um, you're asking the question, how is my presence here? God, how is my presence here meaningful in this space to stand against evil? And so when you look at the calls of scripture, of the prophets, both all 12 and major and minor, um, when they're saying like, just seek God, just seek God and do what is good, hate evil. And so I think that that invitation to return to God, to, to love God, to seek God, to prioritize God, and to hate what is evil is the is the thing I feel when I'm standing in those places. But it's the same thing that you all should feel that are listening to this 
wherever you're standing, wherever your feet fall, you have injustice all around you. You have principalities and power that are squashing out entire communities all around you. There is a spirit of, of, um, of greed that is present in our histories that has to be announced, that it has to be fought against in our decisions, how we spend our money, how we live in the world, how we invest our money. Um, and so um, I think that that's how I see it. Like I, I don't see my work as any more difficult actually than anyone else's work. I think the injustice that I see around me or the brokenness in my neighborhood is just very visible. And the brokenness in, in richer neighborhoods or wealthier neighborhoods is deceitful because it appears to be good. And so therefore, people are standing in idolatry and they're standing in bondage and they're standing in evil and they don't even know it. They think it's good. They think this is the blessing that God has given them when in actuality it's literally the chains that they're in. Um, and so at least I am aware of the chains that hold us and they're visible in our jails, you know, in our prisons and on our borders. And I'm able to say, um, you know, what can I do about this? So I think that's the kind of prayer posture I take. Like God help me to see, help me to see wherever my feet stand, what it looks like to, to love you and to center you and to hate evil and to do good. I think very practically, um, I, I usually have a Psalm or a, something from Lamentations or a scripture that I'm holding on to in a season. And this has been mine. I put it in my newsletter for Chasing Justice. So I'll read it to you. This is from Psalm 13. Most of it is the Psalm, but I also put it, put a piece in that's mine. But this is what I've been, this is what I've been praying as I've been watching for those of you that are aware of um, the news in the, in the U S of all of the young, young folks, folks that have been killed at the hands of our law enforcement's because we love our guns. So um, here's what Psalm 13 says. It says, How long, Lord, will you forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from us? And how long must, must we wrestle with our thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in our heart. And how long will white supremacy and American nationalism triumph? Look on us and answer, Lord our God. Give, us light, give light to our eyes or we will sleep in death. Give air to our crushed, submerged, violated lungs so we can breathe. Give strength to our steps as we continue to march for justice. Give wisdom to our words as we make a case for our humanity. Give rest to our bodies as we stand against the abuse of the white church. Give hope to our souls that there is a better way with uh, black and indigenous people of color at the center. Or my enemy will say, I have overcome, and my fo foes will rejoice when we fall. But we will trust in your unfailing love. Our heart will rejoice in your salvation. We will sing your praise for you have been good to us. Um, and so that's the Psalm, Psalm 13, one through six, um, that has been holding me in this time. Like, I'm just asking God, like, can you just see this? Can you just look at this? Can you just give us a way um, out or, or, or through? Um, because we're, we're not we're barely making it, you know? And then obviously in every Psalm of Lamentation, there's a, um, a, a, a statement of trust, you know, but we trust in your love and our heart rejoices in your salvation. The one that we don't experience right now, um, through this situation we're going through and we give praise because we know that you've been good. So I think this is the model for me of, of going through this, this stuff. And, um, 
And this model was given to me through my community. It's what they do on a Sunday morning. This is the, 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 the movement of prayer on a Sunday morning in a church, in a community where there are um, folks that are disenfranchised because we're not starting with celebration. We're starting with what we're trying to pick up from the week um, and trying to move ourselves. That's why I think when people think about like, for example, di diversity or differences in worship, when people think about like, well, why does the black worship leader have to yell at you while you're worshiping and tell you to, to you know, clap your hands and to God is worthy and give God the praise and don't stay silent. And, um, you know, like why is it so assertive? And the reason is because people are coming in like on the floor, basically. Um, and when you hear the testimonies of the people, you know that when you're living in fear all, all, year, uh, all week long, you need somebody to tell you not to be afraid, that God is with you, um, and to help you rehearse the truth with your mouth. Um, so yeah, so I think during this time, like I would say, this is my Psalm. I pick, I pick something and I just hold on to it. And I, and I would say that, that I don't think what I do is any more extraordinary than, or, or difficult than what all of us do. I just see it close up. The rest of us may not be as close to it, but it's still happening around us. You know, it's still there. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. Thank you. I'm wondering if, so I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking about some of the folks in our church who, um, who have deliberately rearranged their lives for the sake of seeking God's justice in terms of where they live and, and how they spend their time and, and how they pray. And I'm wondering what you might want to say specifically to those folks. So these are, these are the folks who are, who are, it intentionally seeking to understand and to see the systems of evil and oppression um, in their workplaces, in their neighborhood, uh, where we are um, in, in the life of the church as well. Um, is there, I, and there may not be, but if there is anything you'd want to say to them about prayer or about what it means to pray in those spaces uh, beyond what you've already shared, um, I'm curious. Um, I guess the most important thing to me is honesty in prayer. I mean, like not being afraid. I just, for me, I can't tell you how meaningful it has been for me to have mentors and pastors in my life who have said to me, you know, just, you just, you, you're allowed to be you're invited to be yourself in prayer. Like the, the time of prayer is really for your connection and your communion with God and not, um, and not really like to practice someone else's words, you know, um, which sometimes it is helpful to use someone else's words in the sense of like written prayers, but to come with your emotions and your way of being, and your, yeah, your your just way of being to God, and so, I think that's that's probably the best advice that was given to me, and it's it's how I understand prayer. So, um, and some of that is just like growing in self awareness. Like, I I am an Enneagram eight, and so I lead 
I lead externally with the emotion of anger, even if anger is not the primary thing, even if anger is not really the root of what I'm feeling, it's the primary thing people see. And so it's almost like it comes through anger to something else. So um, I'm allowed to be angry at what I see around me. And um, I'm allowed to say to God how I want to say to God what I want to say to God. But that's for God's ears only, you know. And so God is not afraid of me. God does not need to be, need me to be like, like, you know, polished or, um, that's the word I'm looking for. Like, God doesn't need me to be diffused before I come before God. Like, I'm allowed to come just as exactly as I am. And I feel like a lot of things, like, we have to, for those of us that live in a gut space, so the eight, the nine, or the one, we're constantly, like, having to diffuse ourselves so that we don't, like, um, you know, and some of us, like, if you're a one, you're literally, like, always saying, like, anger is not appropriate, anger is not appropriate, anger is not appropriate, so you're not ever accessing that you think it's inappropriate but for me i'm just like listen god this is what i'm feeling i'm gonna tell you and i expect you to do something about it and i know you will but i'm not feeling it right now and so i just have those prayers and usually by the end of the prayer i'm like oh what i feel is betrayal what i feel is rejection what i feel is disappointment what i feel is hurt what i feel is misunderstood and none of those are anger. There are a bunch of other emotions. But because the people told me I could be honest in prayer, I came, I came as I was, and I was able to sort through that to where I to what I was really experiencing and feeling. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I think um, giving giving ourselves the freedom to come to God as we are. And I know we say this all the time, no, but really, like we're just it's like, really, there aren't certain words you have to use. And to be frank with you, I don't exclude any words either. So if I want to cuss, I will. I just will. Because God is not concerned with whether or not I have a potty mouth. God is concerned with whether or not I care about the things God cares about. And so in order to bring God's heart into a room, I have to process it through my human experience. And my human experience is not perfect. My human experience does have an edge on it. And so I'm going to experience it how I'm going to. And I've never, ever thought to myself, well, God was just really upset with the way I just should have been more, you know, gracious as I came to God because grace is, no, I'm just like, this is who I am and this is what I'm feeling. And, and in the place of honesty and vulnerability, I find what's really there. Um, so I would say whatever that is for you and your own personality and temperament, like we have to go through it, you know? Yes, we do have to go through it. Good golly. Yes, we do. Well, thanks so much for this. I am so thankful for uh, what you shared and for your life and your love and your faithfulness and edgy, your edge. <laughs> it's great. I'm so thankful. I think we'll wrap it up there. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure.